Thank you very much for this uh, for this privilege and you know just meeting with Pastor Q and listening to his heart for God and for the church and hearing about your church has got me excited. And what I want to do is I tell him I want a partnership with you <laughs> and the two churches. And I think we've got something we can really, you know, ask God to teach us. And I would love for some of you to come to our church and teach us. I hear, you know, especially the prophetic ministries moving mightily here. And that's, that's an amazing thing. And I, I'm delighted. Uh, I'm also delighted because, uh, as he said, his granddaughter is called Eternity. <laughs> so there is a deep connection. And when I heard about your name in a house of prayer for everyone, and he said how he got that in a, at a time when he was in India. And when eternity first began, the main image that we put on the screen, we were three people when we began, was my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. That was the image that was there for many years. See, before we came with a logo or anything like that, that's what was there. So there is a deep way in which I believe, you know, God has connected a, a very common vision. Uh, and that vision comes through who Jesus is and what the Spirit guides us to do. So what I want to do this morning is, um, sorry, I just want a place to put this. Yeah, thanks. Oh, sorry, I didn't even look at that. <laughs> it's a little, yeah, come on, just move that chair. Yeah. Closer, yeah. Um, I don't see this as a teaching time. I don't see this as a... I just want you to almost sit back, relax, experience the story. Uh, because the church as we have it today the word of God as it is written is simply people telling the story from one generation to another. This is how I met God. This is what God did. And in the retelling of that story, there is something powerful that exalts the name of God. It is not about us. Every story reveals more of the character of God, the goodness of God, the wonder of God. And that's it. the church exists only as that testimony and that story is told faithfully from generation to generation. You can have the Bible, you can have all the scholarship, but unless there is that authentic retelling of the story, there is no catching of the spirit. And so that is what I want to do. This morning, I'm going to share quite a bit about my life as a testimony. He asked me to share more of the testimony of you know, who I am and what God has done. And as I share that, it is not about me or my wife. By the way, that's my wife, Nalini. And you know, uh, this year makes 40 years of being married. <laughs> so uh, it, it's been a wonderful journey and part of my testimony will be about that 
So as I share that, it is just for you to see from where I came from, from our background, how little we had, no mentors, nothing, and how the spirit and the word took hold of us and moved us. So, uh, I, so for me, the scripture that is very powerful is from 1 John 1, 1 to 4. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it. We testified to it. We proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen, which you have heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Three times in those four verses, he says, that which we have seen. Twice, he says, that which we've heard. This is what we proclaim. This is our testimony. You see, there is something very powerful when a life story says, this is what God has done. And I think what, you know, in the American church, unfortunately, we think we are more equipped the more trained we are. You know, that's the biggest fallacy. See? I think we are more equipped the more we are ready to tell the story of who God is and what he has done. That's where I find the Spirit coming and equipping us, making us to testify to who Jesus is. So that's what when Jesus said, you know, you will receive power, see? and you will be my, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. Witnesses to say, I've seen it. I've heard it. I've touched with my hands. And it is that personal authenticity that is most lacking in the church today, particularly in our country now. And what, what are people longing for? They're saying, I want truth. In this post-truth culture, what they're looking for is an authenticity that is backed by an integrity of life that clearly demonstrates this is not about me. This is about the one who made me. And that sense of an ability to, to testify to that is what is at the heart of the gospel. And so as I look at it, the spirit, what was the one thing that the spirit does? He glorifies. You know, we confess it even in our... He will glorify the Father and the Son. And that is our call. Filled with the Spirit, we are called to glorify who God is. So, my own story. Uh, I was born uh, in a family that has been Christian for 260 years. In India. It's totally unthinkable. So, uh, you know, we were in Denmark two years ago, and we went to this mission place, and they said, meet our mission head. And I used to tell my family always and tell them, saying, you know, there were two missionaries called Ziegenbach and Plutcher who came to 
Southern India, and it's through them that we became Christian Lutheran missionaries. And so, the, you know, they used to sort of kid me saying, you know, this is one of his told stories. <laughs> but we, we are in Denmark in this place, and the mission head comes, and he's telling us the story how the Danish mission had a vision to send missionaries to India years ago. And because the Danish priests were either drunk or lazy, they recruited two German Lutheran missionaries <laughs> called Ziegenberg and Plutscher. Just imagine. And I'm sitting there listening to that story and saying, and I told him, I'm a result of that vision. That's it. So you see that the movement of the spirit is far more than we can fathom. That's it. And I stand here because somebody in Denmark had a vision to reach India, sent Lutheran missionaries, and they came. So I grew up in a family that was Christian, but because my father was in the Air Force, we were in different parts of India where there were no Christians, no church, no Sunday school. We were sometimes the only Christian family in all of town, completely Muslim, completely Hindu, Buddhist, Zoroastrian, all kinds of things. You know, as a child, you'd get up and you'd see across in the temple people slaughtering a goat, a blood sacrifice taking place. That's the kind of every corner there was an idol, a fertility cult around which you know, people worship. That's the context in which I grew up. So I grew up without any church, without any Sunday school. And the earliest memory of anything Christian is seeing my parents in prayer early morning next to their bed. And I knew they were talking to God. And my faith was what emerged within the context of the home. Very simple. That's how I learned faith. And so the only contact was through shortwave radio to a broadcast from Lincoln, Nebraska, called Back to the Bible Broadcast. Yeah, <laughs> long before Vernon Maggie. This was Theodore Epp. Uh, by the way, I'm 66 years old, and so I'm pretty dated. <laughs> uh, so you can imagine how little Christian contact or influence there was. If you found a Christian who was Anglican or Catholic or Pentecostal, you were just happy <laughs> that there was a Christian. <laughs> so there was no denominational kind of bias. And so in this context of growing up, we'd wandered all around, and then I come to the city in Madras, and there uh, I remember a Hindu friend said, I want to go to church, because I've never gone to church before regularly. See? There is no church where I grew up. I said, OK. So we went, we went to this Anglican church for an even song. That's the, we were the only two people. And the priest was doing the thing. And that's the church I went to. My first sort of experience of a, attending a church was the most dead service you can imagine. <laughs> Okay. But what happened is there in that church, there came a priest who was a Hindu convert. And he came and uh, he said, 
I'll come and pray with me. I said, I don't know how to pray. See? So he just goes, kneels down, and he says, you pray. And I didn't know how to pray loud like that. And uh, although I'd grown up in a Christian, so I'd say something, and then he shares Christ with me. And September 16th, 1972, uh, I committed my life to Christ. Even when he shared Christ, I said, give me three days. I want to think about this. I go home. So it was no sermon, nothing like that. Very simple thing. I go home, I kneel down next to my bed, and I start to pray. And I just start to weep. I wept for almost an hour. All I knew is God loved me. He had forgiven me. I didn't know the theology of the cross. I didn't know about substitutionary atonement. <laughs> All I knew is he loved me, and I'm forgiven. So I went back and said, I decided to accept Christ. And he was so excited. <laughs> See, uh, I'm not one of those who gets excited about anything. Uh, I just, you know, what happened in my own life was uh, when I was about seventh grade, my mother became schizophrenic. My father was away, and so I was the primary caretaker. I was the cook. I had to manage the budget, take care of everything. So I lost my entire youth. So I didn't know how to enjoy myself in anything. And, but here comes this experience of being loved by God being forgiven by God, and this completely transformed me. What I want to say is how when God puts his hand on you, he does things not the way you plan it. See? My dream was to be a fighter pilot in an aircraft carrier. Okay? And uh, here I was, 22,000 people in India applied for 12 positions in the Indian Air Force for naval aviation. I was one of those 12 who were selected, okay? And, but you get selected, and then I'm disqualified because I don't have enough weight and I'm too small. <laughs> and anyway, so I'm here in church, in this Anglican church. This is about October 15th, a month later, after my conversion. So preacher who says, why hasn't anybody come forward to ministry in this church for a long time? Is it because God has stopped speaking, or is it because you've stopped listening? Simple question. See, at that time, I was the most introverted person you could ever imagine. If there was a group, I would probably be reading the announcements in the notice board so that nobody would see me. <laughs> and then for me to say, I will, I'm available, was a big move. So my theme verse became sort of, you know, my theme statement, Lord, I'm willing to be a fool for you. That's all I'm willing to be, you see. Or Galatians 1.10, would you rather please God or please man? So within a month of my commitment, I have a call to ministry. It's clear it's pastoral ministry. But... Uh, a week later, the same pastor who led me to faith has a vision at night, wakes up his wife and tells his wife, I saw David and Nalmi married and serving the Lord. Okay, I'm 19. 
she's 14. <laughs> okay. And this is the vision he has. And his wife says, you're crazy. He comes and tells me this vision. And in Indian culture, in my family culture, we only marry within the clan, within the family. You never marry outside. So I said, she's not a believer. She doesn't have a call to ministry. That's not going to be. Guess what? I mean, not, you want to say anything, Nalini, about what happened to you? <laughs> <laughs> so by, by the first week of November, she commits her life to Christ. Okay? And then what happens is I said, she must know clearly have a call to be a pastor's wife. So, and nobody knows that I'm going to be a pastor. And then she should know who it is, because I'm too introverted. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so what happens? December 26th, that same year, this is within three months of commitment to Christ. All these three things happen, and she tells the pastor this. He brings both of us the first day to the altar, makes us kneel down, lays his hands on us, and dedicates us for the ministry. So I'm 19, she's 15. I go to, because you can't date in India, so I go to her father's house that evening and ask permission. And I tell him, I will only see her in the house, I will not see her anywhere else, under your supervision. And I kept, we kept that promise for seven years before we got married. <laughs> But see the way God works. This is how he decides to lay his hand on you, calls you. Who am I? You see? And who are we? He takes us. And then we get married you know, very quickly, have two children in the first two years. The first year we have our son, and in another two and a half years, our daughter. And I'm at this parish in St. Thomas Mount. St. Thomas Mount is the place where the Apostle Thomas was martyred okay, in, the, in that church there. 20, when I started there, I was 24. Pastor of four churches. Principal of a school. What do you do at 24? <laughs> what do you do? You cannot, you know, the, you, you know, I was a very good student came out at the top in the university, seminary, all that thing, but that's no use. You come to the situation there, and the Scottish missionary there calls me and says, David, there is a situation we don't know what to do. This school teacher, a Hindu woman, became a Christian. And the day she became a Christian, opposite the house, there is a Hindu temple where they worship the cobra and they feed that cobra. But the day she became a Christian, the cobra leaves the temple, comes into her house, and she's sleeping on the mat on the floor, and the cobra comes and lies down next to her. Okay? So this woman is so petrified, she hasn't slept for three days. So the missionary says, what do we do? Now, my evangelical training in a good seminary didn't teach you how to deal with this. <laughs> okay? I mean, they were the best scholars. They were from Oxford University, from Fuller, from Asbury, from Gordon Conwell, all these places. But nobody taught me how to deal with this. 
So what do I do? 24, what do you know? <laughs> I said, okay. I said, I don't know what to do. I said, bring me a, a bowl of water. Brought a bowl of water. So I pray over it, and I take that bowl, water, sprinkle it all over the house, and I rebuke this serpent, and the serpent stops coming as of that day. So what does that do? It teaches you saying, trust the Lord. You may, no, there is nowhere in the Bible where it says, you bless a bowl of water. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, th that's what happened. That's what the Lord did. That's how the Lord worked. And you follow that leading. Was I schooled in the Pentecostal thing? Was I mentored in some, you know, Battle school of supernatural ministry? No. <laughs> you see, I had nothing. So why do I share this? I share this because not because I am anything. I'm just telling you how weak, totally incompetent, unprepared I was for the ministry. You see? And God says, I will work. Sit back and see what I do. And you share who I am. That's all. So in that place, we are there. So sort of to backtrack, when I'm in the seminary, what happens is they're teaching the Gospels and the Book of Acts by one of the top scholars in the world. And uh, as I'm there, my heart begins to question, saying, how is it that there is nothing about the Holy Spirit being taught here? If at all what was being taught was that has ceased with the apostolic age. And there was no emphasis of this will continue. So three other students and I, we decided to seek the Holy Spirit in secret. Um, because honestly, we were scared if we were found out, we may be thrown out of this place. <laughs> uh, so the only way we could seek the Spirit was, we said we are going to fast and pray. But at dinner time, everybody goes to the, you know, have their dinner. That time, nobody will know if we are missing. So we found an old water tank on top of a building, and we used to climb into that and sit down and pray, fast and pray every day for six months, so seeking the Spirit. Nothing happened. Our hearts were just, it was a time of hunger for God. Nothing happened. So for me, there was always this thing saying, I need more. There was a hunger for God. Uh, I knew I didn't have it. And unless God filled me, there was no way in which I could do or be who I'm called to be. It wasn't just doing. It was more you know, the passion for the presence, a living presence. That was more than an understanding of the scriptures. As I said, you know, I was very good in studies, you know, Greek came very easily to me, so did Hebrew. I did very well in all that. But all that academic learning didn't give what I needed. Uh, and this is where I think training is important. You know, uh, I'm an academic at heart, but that's not where the power lies. You see? That comes as a re result of the hunger for God that you want to learn more, not the other way. Let's say. The training doesn't provide the power. The hunger 
provides the training. So that, that's what I want to share. So we do all this. Nanli and I are married. We are out in the parish. And after the first, uh, and, and in that parish, we begin to see all kinds of manifestations. That place was full of demonic activity. Uh, we had a woman who came to our house, old woman. Obviously, she was very beautiful when she was young. And in India, outside churches, there is a little booth-like thing lit up, covered, in which an open Bible is there, so that anybody walking by the street can stop and read the Bible. Because Bibles are not available. Even Nalli and I, we didn't have a Bible till we were 20. See? And the first Bible I had was a second-hand Bible that somebody had sent from America to India that I could afford to buy. So these Bibles are open, and this woman would stop to read. And then she came and told us the story of how she had been the most wanted prostitute in that area. Okay. And somehow an evil spirit had entered into her or was tormenting her. And she said, every time I read the Bible, things start to happen around me. Okay. And boy, if she opened her mouth to talk, the smell would kill you. It was so bad. It was, you knew this was more than something, just bad breath. <laughs> and there was something evil about it. This is the kind of thing you encounter when you're 25. You know, I've got a newly married wife, and this is where we are. We'd see all kinds of manifestations. So how does the gospel challenges. There needs to be a power encounter that shows clearly Christ is the victor. Or we'd have a young person come running to our house and say, mommy is beating up daddy badly, and daddy's a solid guy. <laughs> Mom is a little person. And you go there and you find in their house there's all kinds of black magic going on. So we were beginning to discover in this in this parish, in our life, ways in which the power of evil, the ruler of this, you know, the prince of this earth, is challenging the presence of the kingdom. And what I learned, what we learned was, we didn't have it, but if there was anything demonic, never back down. We know who's the victor. <laughs> we know. And we had no experience, absolutely no experience, to cast demons out. I'd never seen it. Nobody had mentored us. But we just had to learn, learn to do it. And in that first, I remember we were in a, in a leprosy colony one night. And in that leprosy colony, while we were distributing some things for Christmas, this woman lets loose her hair and starts to dance. And she's dancing at a crazy angle that defies gravity. And you know this is demonic. You see, very clearly demonic. So we were too tired. It was late at night. So we said, tomorrow, told her husband, saying, bring her. And the husband said, my wife eats a mountain of food. She's small. <laughs> but this is part of the demonic thing in her. So when she came home to, our house, to the church the next day, Nanli and I are praying with her in the church. And as we are praying, say, you know, ask the spirit to come out. And the spirit is 
talking back to us and saying, please let me go to this village. We didn't know anything about the gift of discernment or anything like that. Suddenly, that's what begins to operate through Naldi. And she said, ask the woman, who's there in that village? And the father replies saying, there is another daughter in that village. So the spirit wanted to leave here and enter that daughter in that village. See? Now, we just had to say, no, you have no power. Jesus has bound you, leave. See? And the spirit leaves. So how do you learn this? Uh, as I said, nobody taught us. You trust the presence of God in you. He says you will receive power. You will be my witnesses. Witnesses is not just a verbal proclamation. It is a living presence. It's you. Your presence is a challenge to the powers of darkness. Uh, and that is what you know, we began to learn and uh, I think this, we forget that it is not just I'm in Christ, Christ is in me, is equally important. And I still remember I was very young in the faith and uh, outside, you know, in India, in the streets, very often you'll have Muslim and Hindu witchcraft and mediums and things like that going on in street corners. So in this place, in this marketplace, there was a crowd gathered, so I went to watch what the crowd was. And there was this Muslim man, and he had a cloth covered over this young girl. And you would pay that Muslim man $2 or $3, and he would tell you if you lost your wallet, whether you can find it or whether it's gone, or if your cow is sick, you know, whether it'll survive. or. Know, those kinds of things, you actually consult this Muslim medium through this girl. And uh, I'm watching what is happening, and the man turns to me and he says, you're disturbing the spirit. Your presence is disturbing the spirit. And I realized it's the presence of Christ in you. It challenges what God, anything that there is a power of God's presence in you that you need to remember. You're not weak. You see? God is in you. Christ in you. you see? That's the power. And so in simple ways, I began to, to learn this thing. So in this, in, you know, we are in this church. We see all these things happening. And I'll tell you one more story. We go to this village, and this, we were trying to look for places where there isn't a single Christian so that we can go and share the gospel. Now, this uh, church where I went to, this, this was my second church after five years of ministry, we are about 30 years old, and suddenly we are called to this Presbyterian church. That's the largest Presbyterian church in southern India. It's like suddenly you're in some in Roanoke, Virginia or something, and you're called to Riverside Presbyterian <laughs> Church. It's like that. Okay. And so suddenly we were in this place, and in this place, this was a fairly liberal place. They read the Bhagavad Gita and the Quran instead of the Old Testament. 
And that's the context into which I went in. I was young, I was the first Indian, it was always missionaries before that. So they thought, you know, here is this narrow-minded person who's come because of your, your faith in the scriptures. So there wasn't any evangelism in this church. It was a big church. They had 48 staff, all kinds of activity, but no evangelism. So I said, okay, God is calling us to share the gospel. We went to find a village that is where nobody is a Christian. So we go into this village, find this place. A Hindu family invites us, and we start sharing the gospel. And there, one woman becomes a Christian, wants to be baptized. So this is a major breakthrough. Okay, the first baptism in a place is a major breakthrough, which means you know, God's kingdom is breaking into the powers of darkness there. So we go there. Normally what you do in a baptism in a village in India is you go and you cleanse the house. You take out all the idols, all the magic and the talismans and everything, and you make a big bonfire before you do the baptism. Okay. So we are, we are doing all that, and this woman's sister starts to dance. And the whole village is watching what's happening, you see. And the moment the woman starts to dance, the village says the gods have come upon her. So they're all watching to see now what's going to happen. Okay? Because you're bringing in, in a different god, and this is their gods is what they're used to. So she starts to dance. As I said, you know, I have no experience about this, but I got very angry because this woman is disturbing this major breakthrough for the gospel. So I don't know what came to me. I just, you know, I don't know about methodologies and all that. I just turned to the woman and said, I command you in the name of Jesus, shut up and go sit down in the corner. <laughs> Guess what happened? She shut up and went sat in the corner. <laughs> and who was the most surprised? You see, I was surprised. <laughs> Because I'd never seen anything like that. So anyway, we go, we finish the baptism, and we come back. And she's still sitting in the corner. Because that's where she was bound. Until she was released, no, she stayed then. That was the thing. So why am I telling you these stories? I'm telling you of how weak I am, how incompetent, how ill-prepared I, I was for the ministry. And how, because of the presence of Christ in us, you see, you're not, you know, defeated. You're not weak. His presence overcomes, you see. And that is an amazing story. I can tell you story after story of God's presence. So, now I leave India, decide, okay, I want to study uh, after 12 years, I'm invited to come and study because I was, you know, good in studies. My seminary wanted me to go and do a PhD and come back as a pastoral professor of pastoral counseling. I go to Oxford, where my professors were, and they said, no, you know, much as we British hate to point out this, but I think you need to go to America. <laughs> so they sent me to Princeton. And I had no idea what Princeton was. You know? So I applied, and you know, again, through amazing, miraculous circumstances, come there, and we are there. And uh, 
So I told you about the demonstration of God's presence in you. The other thing I think we got to depend on as a church and as ministers of the gospel is for God's provision. Um, in India, as I said, I was one of the leading pastors in the country, in one of the biggest churches. My staff were 48 people. And then I come to Princeton. We arrive with $80 in our pocket because the government wouldn't allow any more than that because you're a Christian. And you arrive in New York City hoping somebody will meet you because you don't even have cab fare to get to Princeton. We come there and we are there. No, we don't know nobody. Okay. The Indian shoes we brought, you know, the soles came apart because of the cold. <laughs> we had to walk three miles because we were just within that distance where children couldn't take the bus. In the cold, we had to walk. We struggled like crazy. You know, our budget was $15 for a week for a family of four. Okay? The first time we tasted pizza in America was a slice of pizza that we could afford at 90 cents at that time. One slice we bought after we'd been in the country for one and a half years. It's the same God. But he wanted us to go through. It's not because he's bad, you know, but this was the situation. We, we just had to trust him to provide for us. And in that situation, while it was tough like that, we come into Princeton, couldn't put the children in school because we couldn't afford a telephone. Okay. Couldn't afford the inoculations or whatever needed. But a week we are there, there's a knock on the door, and there's Bob Mayo. Bob Mayo was an intern from Oxford University. When I was pastor of the church there, he was an intern there. And I said, how great to see Bob. And he says, my mother said, you've moved to Princeton. So he actually asked me to come visit because I was visiting New York. And we are so delighted to have a familiar face. We eat together, what little we have. While he's going, he said, mom asked me to give you this envelope. And leaves. We are so happy we didn't even think about it. After a little while after he's gone, we said, we opened the envelope. $1,000 was there. What did we come with? 80. Within a week, God provides. And God began to provide, and our story is a story of God's provision. And we've learned that, you know, when you trust the Lord, He will provide. He takes the five loaves and the two fish, and He feeds. Again, you know, as when we were still in our first church, that church again didn't believe in evangelism, and we felt called to do evangelism. So we wanted to do an evangelistic ministry in the church, and the church elders said, this is your heart, you pay us rent for using the church compound. I'm the pastor. <laughs> and uh, so we said, okay, if you want to, I will, but I'll tell the whole congregation that this is what you want. Anyway, so they backed out. But, <laughs> uh, but we had to pay for all the lights and the stage and everything. There's no money. So 
we are here, we have our first child, it's the end of the year, and we decided, okay, next month's salary we'll give completely to this ministry we believe in. Now, we are living from month to month, remember. <laughs> so we write off our whole salary, do everything. I'm sitting there preparing a message for the new year, and I'm saying, come first of the month, there's no money to feed my wife or my child, and there's nothing. What's the message I bring to the congregation? And even as I'm struggling with the message, what God will say, etc., the postman comes, delivers a letter from Australia. And I visited Australia some time back, and a church there said at the end of the year, the women's fellowship had leftover money, and we thought, who should we send it to? We thought, we'll send it to you. Guess how much money that was? Double, exactly double what we had written off. This is how God cares for us. He provides for us. And I've seen this again and again and again. I won't take 15 hours. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so when we look at the whole gospel, the gospel is to proclaim the greatness of this God. Let's say, uh, the God who's, who is completely good, the God who, you know, is here to heal, to cast out demons, to cleanse the lepers, to raise the dead. And that's the mandate he's given us. So as you look at the church today, you know, just to shift gears, in the world population of 7.3 billion, only 2.3 are Christian. That's 31%. And so out of these, the largest churches in the world, China, the dark continent is the continent that has the most Christians now. There are churches in my city that are 60,000. One church. There are two other churches that 30,000, 20,000. And you're beginning to see how these countries that were sort of the countries to which missionaries went other places where God is alive and active. And there is something that is happening in terms of the movement of the spirit. And even in these places... Say, take, for example, the Chinese church. I mean, some of you are Chinese, so you can probably better tell the story. They say 90% of those who came to faith came because they had an experience of healing or saw an experience of healing in an immediate friend or family. 90%. What does that say? You know, that which we've seen, we've touched, we've heard. You know, this we declare to you. There is something authentic when it is not just a verbal proclamation. That is necessary. But there is also a visible evidence and say, I'm a witness. And I saw it with my own eyes. And it's that ability to tell the story, to tell the story again and again. And uh, 
which is, which is the church that is growing the fastest, the churches that believe in this, the Pentecostal churches, see, they grew 600% between 1970 and 2000, when major denominations are in decline. Why? Because somewhere they're learning, they're simple people, and most of the, who are the most effective evangelists in the world today? And they did a major study for India, for example, and found those who have an educational level of eighth grade. And they also discovered the higher the level of education, the lower the level of evangelism and active ministry in healing. What does that tell us? What do we trust? It doesn't mean we devalue education, but let's not put all our eggs in that basket. Let's learn to allow the Spirit to teach us. And uh, so in this kind of, we live in a culture that has this Western paradigm and philosophy where the worldview or, I mean, psychology is the second language of our country. That's it. Uh, even in the healing ministry, today when I hear in the American church a lot about this inner healing, you don't hear about inner healing outside of America. <laughs> if it is healing, it has to be real healing. <laughs> Not, none of this inner healing. <laughs> uh, see, what we've done to this, see, with our education and our kind of worldview, we just get enculturated so that the gospel becomes domesticated, limited. And this is where I think we need to recover what the gospel means for us. So uh, along with this you know, has come this kind of a dichotomy between public and private in our faith in this country. Oh, your faith, keep it to yourself. But unless faith is public, it cannot be validated. And this is where I think part of the call for us as the church is to say, I'm not going to be pushed down by the culture. I'll just be authentic. I have a voice. And part of this is to say, this is what God is doing in my life. And again, you know, when you look at, when I look at my own seminary training, heavily influenced by the Western thinking, much of seminary training, and that is this kind of a enlightenment mentality. Even the way we look at the scripture is, you know, you have to go study the context, the background, the history, the, the text, exegeted, the grammar, all that. And in the process, what are you losing out? We are losing out the capacity to listen to God. We are becoming so sufficient in ourselves and in our own capacities to think and to pass the scriptures that we don't know the power of God. So uh, very often our understanding of Jesus it's limited to this human Jesus and that to kind of a Jeffersonian kind of a Jesus say, that's limited only to Gospels. And in the Gospels, we'll cut out all the miracles. We have no concept of the Jesus of the book of Revelation. 
understand? The greatness of God, the coming Christ, the magnitude of who this is. We almost need to have a transfiguration experience where our eyes are open to see the greatness of who Jesus is. We still see Jesus as just this human figure who died for me, who's a servant, who heals. That's it. We have a little capacity to see who he is, the exalted Christ. And the more we catch a vision of the exalted Christ, the more we can be say, I, as a child of God, as a friend of Jesus who says, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. See? And in the intimacy of that relationship, I walk with somebody who's the ruler of the universe. And that takes me and places me in a different footing. Gives me a different foundation on which to stand. And I think that's the confidence that we need to recover in the church. Not in myself, but in who he is. So the bigger the vision of Jesus, the stronger the church becomes. And that's what the Spirit does. So as we look at this, the whole uh, way in which I think even in this country, The churches that are are holding the faith in terms of the authenticity of the gospel, the movement of the spirit, the capacity to listen and move in prophetic, in healing, and the ways in which we confront the powers of darkness, is going to come from not those who are sold out in this Western philosophic. You know, paradigms, but those who are willing to come back to a biblical paradigm. And that's going to take almost a generational shift. And that's what gives me confidence when I see you. There's a generational shift, Pastor. You've done it. (laughs) Not many churches can you look and say, here is the next generation. And one of the biggest lies that has been sold to the church is the next generation is not going to be in the church. Don't believe that lie. You know? uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about the promise that the next generation is going to be one of the prayers we pray at Eternity Church very often is, Lord, let the next generation be more faithful than we have been. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Generation to generation, the covenant grows. And we should believe in that. Claim it. And we often bless our children when they come up for blessing and say, they need to be blessed even more than we are. And we have a tradition in our church. When a child is born, before the parents take the child home, they bring the child to the church. And we take the baby, leave the baby on the altar, and have a prophetic word over that child and give that parents the prophetic word about the child and hand the baby back to the parents and say, take this child and bring up this child in the faith. Why do we do that? We claim this as a promise, as an inheritance. Say, that the, you know, from generation to generation, it's going to grow, not lessen. We've got to believe that. Believe that for your children and your grandchildren and claim it as part of God's inheritance for you. (coughs) Okay, this is, uh, what is the time? Okay, 
When do you take your break normally? Three o'clock. <laughs> no, don't tell me that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, how do I recognize the movement of the spirit? How do I recognize the movement of the spirit? One of the things to become more sensitive to is God is the one who initiates. We love him because he first loved us. That's it. The hallmark of the difference between Christianity and Hinduism, Buddhism, and all that is God takes the initiative and he comes down to us. That's it. And so to watch for those places, recognize the tiny spark in a person's conversation, in a person's life, something God is doing where, say, God has begun to move in this person's life. When I was at third church, I was the one who was always asked to do the new members class because I had, that was the time we led many people to faith. And I would just say, okay, tell me any experience that you think is supernatural. I deliberately didn't say Jesus. Where you felt this was beyond you and somebody was speaking to you or something was happening. It might be the way you avoided an accident or when you saw your baby born, something happened. And people would tell me. And I know those are the places at which God has initiated, even for an unbeliever. Recognize the places where God initiates. Okay? And it is amazing what that happens. Two years ago at Eternity Church, we have a fellowship of students at the university. And we have about 50 students who come there. 100% of them are not Christian. They're Hindus, Muslim, communist, Buddhist, atheist. That's the group we have. And so at Christmas time, Nali and I invite the whole group to our home because most of them had never been to an American home. And we cook them an Indian dinner, and they come, and we have some you know, Christmas songs and all that. And at the thing, I don't preach long there. I don't, we don't even have a Bible study regularly there. It's a very simple way in which we feel like life needs to impact life. Share faith and stories and see what God does. We've had many believe in Christ. So at this Christmas event, I said, do you all know why we celebrate Christmas? It's all about Jesus. I said, if you want to remember anything about Christmas, remember the word Jesus. And I said, that means God saves us. That's it. My message was about 20 seconds. Okay. I finished that, and there are the parents of a Chinese student and his wife who are visiting there. They can't speak a word of English, but the son is translating in Chinese as I'm speaking to him. And the father begins to weep. Okay. Father begins to weep. Son is so embarrassed because the father is weeping. Okay. And the father calls me. And he's very excited, and he tells me, saying, when you said God saves us, and he's saying this repeatedly in Chinese, God saves us, God saves us in Chinese. And so 
And then he says, when my mother was dying and I was a little boy, my mother called me and gave me a little black book and said, this is who I believe in. I want you to read this and believe this God. And he said, when you said God saves me, I remembered my mother and what she asked me to do. I want to know about this God. Okay. Is it something, did I do some big evangelistic sermon or anything? Nothing. See the way God initiates. God initiated something 40, 50 years ago in this family. And so I go to their house, through their son, I translate the gospel. The father is already ready to believe, turns to the wife and says, don't you want to believe? And she's crying, and she says, I too want to believe. And she believes, and then the son says, I want to believe. And then the daughter-in-law says she wants to believe, and they've got a baby. And all five of them came to, in front of the church and were received as Christians. That's it. You can't make this up. That's it. See the way God initiates. Recognize something when God is initiating and move into that and see, let the Spirit carry you. Let the Spirit carry you. So that you know, God, you know, He reveals Himself. So, and, and the other thing is, you know, along with this thing comes a very deep uh, encounter, a personal, and I told you my own story of conversion, how <clears throat> I just go, kneel, pray, and there's this deep thing of forgiveness, of being loved. There is not an understanding of the cross. There is no great theology or biblical text. There is an experience. It is like a gestalt experience. You grasp the whole, and then you begin to make sense of it. So, uh, so it, 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 you know, in the Einstein Institute of Advanced Studies at Princeton, there was a great mathematician who was doing some research on this Indian mathematician called Ramanujan. He was one of the greatest mathematicians of all time. He had no education, probably a 10th grade education, but he wrote these mathematical formulas that people are still trying to figure out. Some of those formulas are three pages long. Okay. How did he get these formulas? He got them in a dream sequence. That's it. And even the DNA molecule, I mean the strand, how did it happen in a dream sequence? Yeah, only then later it came about, yeah. So the conversion experience, an experience of God, is not something you can say two plus two makes four plus two makes six. It is a whole experience. And then you begin to make sense out of it. So trust that wholeness of what is happening in a person's life, and then teach the person to make sense of it. And that personal encounter is an encounter of forgiveness. It's an encounter, more than anything else, it's an encounter of love, even before forgiveness. Sometimes we begin with saying, you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. First, let them know the glory of God. <laughs> that it is, God loves you. And this is the glory of God. You see? 
He's, he's completely good. And then it'll reveal that. Then um, the other way in which we recognize the movement of the Spirit, in, for me, in myself, is uh, there is a, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, there is a new boldness. It's not a brash, cocky sense, but a boldness that comes that is not of you. You see, you know it is not of you, but the Spirit, Christ in you, that gives you that boldness. And uh, that, that whole sense of a boldness of the, the Spirit that helps you to replace fear with love. That's right. uh, perfect love casts out fear. That becomes a reality in you. And because it is a reality in you, it moves about you as well. So that, that sense of the Spirit giving you a new boldness. I'll give you another story. Uh, I have... I was very, very sick my entire life as, as a child and young person. Uh, in fact, I never thought I would cross 45 years old because I was so sick. So, uh, I, I was so sick that when I went to an ophthalmologist in America and she started taking my personal history, medical history, halfway through she said, give me five minutes, came back with gloves on. <laughs> but, uh, but I had asthma, and I had ulcers, I had, you, just, you name it, I had, I had tuberculosis, I had hepatitis and tuberculosis at the same time. Okay? That's how sick I was, nearly died. Okay? And I'm at this pastor's gathering in this diocese, and pastor's gathering are infamously godless <laughs> uh, in many places. And so we are here, there's somebody who's visiting, who's pr praying, and I just go up for prayer because I was at a quandary what God wants me to do with my life. I'm not asking for healing. He's not praying for healing. He puts his hand on me, and I feel like liquid fire going right through my body. Okay. And I knew instantly I was healed. And not only was I healed, because the task that was there in this new church was very heavy, and I needed a healthier body. Not only was I healed, I was given a gift for evangelism. A gift, but I told you, I, I'm a timid person by nature. Now there came this new boldness that I didn't have. And anywhere you can ask me to share the gospel, I'm not in the least bit frightened. It doesn't matter if it's the most educated place or the most in a simple place. There is a boldness to proclaim Jesus that came through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. See, I know it is not in me. You see? It, it, it is to recognize how the Spirit moves in us. It's not my qualification. Right? It is what the Spirit does in you. He empowers you. This is grace. Grace is not just... I'm a sinner saved by grace. Grace is, I'm a 
sinner empowered now with the presence of Jesus Christ. This is grace. It is not sufficient grace. It is abundant grace. It is infinite grace. You see? That's what the boldness of the Spirit that comes because of this. And uh, I still remember one instance where uh, in the city of Madras, there was this big women's university. And one day at about 11 o'clock in the morning, the principal of the school is knocking on my door. And she says, David, can you come? The physics professor died. She was the head of the department. She died yesterday. And we are having a big funeral, the whole city, or everybody's gathered there. Can you come and say something? And so I just have time to change, get up in a car and go there. And everybody in the city knew this professor just laughed at Christians, publicly said this is the greatest fallacy and everything. You know, you can imagine she was a brilliant mind and she just said Christians are the biggest fakes. And I'm asked to speak there, okay? not speak. She said, just come say a prayer. So I go there. There's a Hindu priest and all kinds of people. Everybody speaks. And then after that, the principal says, David, now David will give the message. I said, oh, Lord. <laughs> what do you speak? <laughs> I can do a prayer. I was ready for that. But the message? You have about five seconds till you walk up to the podium. So what do you depend on for that? Okay. So I'm talking about this boldness. I didn't walk up to the podium. I walked up to the coffin where her body lay. And I said, this professor challenged us in her life about truth. In her death, she challenges us even more. Let me ask you, if all the brilliance of the world ends in this, is that all there is to life? And talked about Jesus being the resurrection from the dead. There were students weeping. There were people committing their lives to Christ that day. Could I have prepared that message if I had sat and thought through all my education? No. You see? The Spirit in you, He will give you a boldness that you do not have. That when you're challenged in the most public places, when you don't know what to say, he will give you what to say. Trust that spirit of God, you see. And you will see, I was, what at the time, 31, 32? Young, had nothing. And God put me in that place. And that's another way in which you recognize the work of the spirit. And in all this, I think, our, our testimony has to be clearly centered on Christ. No matter how much uh, or how varied our experiences of the Holy Spirit, no, the Holy Spirit comes to point to Jesus, point to the Father. You see? So every empowering, every ecstatic experience of the Spirit is to do this to magnify Christ. There must be that centrality to, to the gospel that we preach. See? So the cross, the resurrection, the coming of, these become the, the touchstones of who we are uh, and the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
And then another mark, I believe, of how the spirit works in us is uh, the spirit gives us a new hunger and a capacity to grasp scripture. Watch this, especially in people who are coming to faith. This is a clear mark and evidence that the spirit is at work. I'll give you the, you know, two, two years ago, yeah, yeah, two years ago, uh, I had a, I was going to a gym and there was a personal trainer. This was a Thai woman from a Buddhist background. I'd been there for about three or four times and while I'm doing you know, exercising and she's training me, um, I talked to her about Jesus. And uh, because she's training me, I might as well you know, use the time. <laughs> and so she begins to get interested in it. And then she's living with her boyfriend, and uh, they, they begin to come. And they said, OK, we, I want to come to your church. And I said, OK, come. So on Monday, I go to her, and she says, I came to your church. You were not there. I said, which church did you, did you go to? She named some other church. <laughs> I said, no, that's not the place. So you come. So she comes, and she and her boyfriend, they come. And when they come, something God begins to work in them. I don't know when or how it began. And the guy comes to see me, and he says, David, I've started to read the New Testament. And he said, I can't put it down. And that tells you something. You know the spirit is at work. See, when there is a hunger for God's word, you can recognize the movement of the spirit. That's a clear sign of the movement of the spirit. And then he begins to say, in about two weeks, he says, I've read the New Testament three times. Now you know, this is God's at work in a big way. And he, he says, this is what he says. Okay? He says, David, I've read the New Testament. I know I shouldn't be living with this girl. I know this is wrong. And he says, you know how beautiful she is. What am I to do? <laughs> this is what he tells me. And I said, OK, what's God telling? And he's saying, God is telling me to set this right. I said, OK, then what do you want to do? Do you want to get married? And they're preparing themselves for baptism as well. And he says, yes, I want to get married, but you, you guide us. So I said, OK, you're coming towards your baptism first. Go through the baptism. But you know, take a vow of celibacy for a period of time as an act of repentance, as preparation for your marriage. He says, OK. And nobody else in the church knows this. They're up there for baptism. And he goes to some store, buys two chains with a cross, and just before they get baptized, they exchange these chains as a sign of their beginning of celibacy. Who did this? You see? God's spirit moving in people recognize these things. You see? A hunger for the word, a hunger to set your life right. And then they came and I said, get married. So they go to the city clerk, get a license, and come, and come into the church. And I married them with two witnesses there. 
and recognize how the spirit moves. See? These are marks of the movement of the spirit in one another. And then a love for people. Uh, the more the spirit of God comes upon me, the more I have a capacity to love people I don't like. I tell my congregation very often, I don't like all of you, you know that. <laughs> yeah, I said, there are some of you God has to teach me to like. <laughs> and this is where the love of God is essential, you see. But he gives us that love, you see. And I can honestly confess, I've learned to love people I don't like. A work of the Spirit. It expands your heart so that love for people is created within you. So that your heart becomes larger. Brother Roger of the Teze movement said, if people weigh you down, don't carry them on your shoulders. Carry them in your heart. And that's what God does as the work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, the work of the Holy Spirit is miraculous, there's prophecy, there's healing, words of knowledge, but there must be the evidence of love. That's it. Uh, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and all that and have not love, I am nothing. That's, it. That's why Paul places that chapter right bang in the middle between 12, you know, between those passages about the gifts of the Spirit. So that, that essential power of God's love is poured into our hearts. So Romans 5, again, in a suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, hope that does not disappoint us because God's spirit has been poured into our hearts, you know, the spirit of love. So, and we need to have that within us. That's one of the powers of the spirit. So... Um, Listening in, in prayer, listening to the promise and claiming that promise and living in the promise of, of God. Uh, I'm one of those, every time there is an invitation to receive more of the Spirit, I'll be there. Say, I, I don't care. I want more. You see, I just want more of God's presence. Uh, and anybody who is anointed, I'll say, pray, lay hands on me and pray. I want more. I want more of the presence of God. That invitation, you know, where you ask for more of the promise of the Father. You know, and live in that promise. Uh, I'll take five minutes more. Um, how do you recognize, continue to recognize the movement of the Spirit in others? I think prayer is not only meant for us to connect with God, Prayer is one of the primary ways in which you can help others connect with God. 
more than preaching, I have found prayer very effective. I almost did my PhD dissertation on that. Prayer is the primary mode of evangelism. So, uh, I'll give you a sample again. There was this lady, her name was, uh, again, a Chinese student, PhD student, came here. When she first came to church, she said, you all close your eyes and you're talking to somebody. Who are you talking to? I said, we are talking to God. And she said, who's that? So you can't even begin with Jesus. Okay. So we started to share with her. As we shared with her, she said, I'm a scientist. It's tough for me to believe in God. I said, okay, how did you get your PhD? I said, you come with a idea, and it'll take you four to five years to prove that, isn't it? I said, why are you in a hurry about God? I said, why don't you go and pray? She said, I don't know how to pray. I said, shut the door, talk to God, see if he'll hear you, see if you can sense his presence. After two months, she comes to me and says, I can't feel anybody. I said, that's okay. You didn't get your PhD in two months. <laughs> go back. <laughs> I said, and so she goes back and she starts to pray. And after some time, she comes and says, I sense somebody there. I can't communicate with that person yet. I said, OK, that's fine. Keep praying. There was this girl in our church who had a spinal cancer. And that girl was you know, in a major surgery. And we had called the whole church to the, university, I mean, the hospital to pray. And guess who was the first one there? This Chinese girl, 7.30 in the morning, she's praying for this girl. And then after a while, she comes to me and says, uh, I want to believe. It took three years. And she took baptism on Easter Sunday, last Easter. Uh, how? You know, trust that movement of God's Spirit in prayer and let God's spirit work in the body. It's not me who does it. It's the Lord who does that. OK, let me just uh, close with this thing. It is not your training. It's not your effort. It's not your righteousness. It's grace. Grace is not just for salvation. Grace is the empowering presence of God that makes the Word become flesh. Okay? And that has to happen in you. That has to happen in me. There, the authenticity of the gospel becomes not just something that is in an individual, it's the communal witness that here, here is a story, here is a story, here is a story. There are so many stories of that, that it is obvious God is at work. Pastor Q, come. How do you want to take this? Anything the Spirit is telling you how to 